police receive a 911 call from a fellow police officer. This officer is saying his wife has sent him an alarming text message. He believes she is going to harm herself. Since he is not at home, he asks that they send someone to go check on her. Upon arrival, police enter the home and kick their way into a locked closet. When this closet is opened, there laying in a pool of blood is the wife of the officer who phoned in the call. Police believe she has a gunshot wound to the head. A police-issued service gun is found underneath her body. The woman's parents are quickly notified that their daughter has committed suicide. This seems to be very odd to a number of people close to this woman. To the police, this seemed like an open and shut case. But was it? What really happened to the woman in the locked closet? Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. If you're listening to Hell No, the chances that you are interested in forensic science is probably pretty high. Makes me wonder if you have heard of a podcast called Vintage Homicide. If not, I highly recommend checking them out. They are two forensic scientists with a true crime podcast. Actually, let's hear from them. We are the co-hosts of Vintage Homicide, Miss Mayday and Ruby Wild. We are a true crime podcast that focuses on historic cases and the investigative techniques and forensic science, which were used long before DNA became the focus of crime scene investigation. We are forensic scientists ourselves who love and live the vintage lifestyle, and we hope to cover cases that you most likely have never heard of, the forgotten infamous as well as the little known. How developments in science and changes in law impacted future crime-solving methods to this day. So if you like dad jokes, history, forensics, and true crime, we are the podcast for you. Come along and join us along our journey of vintage homicide. I, for one, do find forensic science absolutely fascinating, and I enjoy listening to Vintage Homicide, so be sure to check them out. Before getting into this week's case, I just want to say that at the time of this recording, Matthew Boyton has never been found guilty or convicted of any crime relating to Jessica Boyton's case. He remains innocent in the eyes of the law. Let's start with the relationship between Matthew and Jessica and work our way up to the night of the incident. Who is Jessica and Matthew Boynton. Jessica and Matthew met in Spalding County, Georgia, when they were both in high school. In 2012, Jessica was in grade 10, Matthew in grade 11, and this is when they started dating. By 2013, Jessica was 16 years old and pregnant with Matthew's baby. The two were young and in love, and in spite of still being in high school, they decided they were going to start a family. Jessica lived with her grandparents as her mother hadn't been part of her life since she was three years old. Jessica and her grandparents were not blood-related as Jessica's mother had been adopted, but Jessica was undoubtedly their granddaughter all the same. 
Her grandparents were supportive of young pregnant Jessica and in no way pushed her away. Jessica wanted to start a family with Matthew, so instead of staying in her grandparents' home and having them help her raise her baby, she and Matthew moved into their own home. Matthew's grandfather was a sheriff in Spalding County, and the house they moved into was right across the road from his grandfather, which means his family was very close if they ever needed any help. Jessica proved to be a loving and caring mother, and she even managed to finish high school and graduate while being a great mother, which I could imagine is no easy task. Those around Jessica could see something wasn't entirely right, though. Matthew seemed to have a hold on Jessica, and as I read a few details about this case, red flags definitely jumped out. When Jessica obtained her high school diploma and graduated, her grandparents were thrilled. They were so happy. They did such a nice thing, and they threw Jessica a graduation party, which I thought was just very sweet and supportive of them to acknowledge this and celebrate it. When Jessica and Matthew arrived to the party, they weren't there very long because Matthew said they had to go. They left so early that Jessica didn't even get to watch the movie her grandparents had arranged to be projected in a makeshift outdoor cinema. Jessica's family was left there celebrating her graduation while she was told she had to leave by Matthew. This wasn't the first time her family felt like they were seeing less and less of Jessica. Ever since she moved in with Matthew and had their baby, they didn't see her hardly ever. Yes, granted, she's a busy new mom, but if she did want to see her family, Matthew would say things like, you're not related to them by blood. The year Jessica had her and Matthew's baby, they went to her grandparents' house for Christmas. Matthew didn't even allow Jessica to open her presents. In what seems to be a classic Matthew behavior, he said they had to go. In my opinion, these incidents could be examples of someone isolating someone from their family and friends in order to gain full control over the individual. Take away someone's family and friends, especially a young new mother who can use all the help they can get, and that is going to make that person become dependent on the person isolating them. Is that what's happening here? Well, I don't know. And I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying from everything I have read and everything I know about domestic and family abuse, those scenarios are coming across as textbook isolation techniques. As Jessica is learning the ropes of being a mom, Matthew, he also graduates high school and eventually becomes a police officer. Before he is put on as a patrol officer, he works as a jailer, which I think means the same thing as a prison guard. One of my sources for this case was an article written by The New Yorker, and in that article, they include some things that Matthew's supervisors wrote about him in his folder. I think this one comment really paints a picture of what Matthew was like. One of his supervisors wrote this about Matthew, quote, the type who wants to make 10 arrests a day if he could, unquote. I mean, that could mean he's ambitious. That could mean a lot of things. Or it could mean he craves power over people and seeks control and dominance. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. Also in this folder was a comment that read, he is stiff and unwilling to bend. If I were to translate that, I would say it could mean stubborn and possibly a totalitarian type. This comment made me think how terrible it would be to live with someone like this. Someone always needing everything done their way, no questions asked, do what they say type of person. 
Matthew and Jessica would argue, and this was even documented because Matthew would call his friends at the police station and say Jessica was yelling at him and poking him in the chest. Police would arrive and they would tell Jessica that it's better to not yell at Matthew. That's what police would do. And that response, that pisses me off because I feel like all the blame is being placed on Jessica. By 2014, Matthew and Jessica were planning their wedding. There was no romantic proposal, and honestly, from what I read, it didn't even sound like Jessica consented to the marriage. It sounded like Matthew just started talking about them getting married. That's what it seems like to me anyways when I was reading about this case. Maybe her thinking was along the lines of, if I disagree with this, then this is going to cause a huge fight, and maybe it's easier to just go along with it and try to figure out a way, you know, for this not to happen later on. Because if that's how she was thinking, then it makes sense that this is around the time she sleeps with another man. Some sources say it was when she was out looking for wedding venues, she met this man and had this affair. There was sources that said her and Matthew were on a break when this affair happened. I don't have all of the finer details about this, but what we do know is that it was around the time they were planning the marriage that Jessica slept with another man. And Matthew did find out because Jessica got pregnant and told Matthew that this baby she was pregnant with was not his. Matthew did not call off the wedding. No, no. He said he would marry Jessica regardless of who the father was and he would raise the baby as his own. If this affair was Jessica's attempt to get away from Matthew, it didn't work. And Jessica's grandmother, Martha, tells the New Yorker that by this time it seemed like Jessica had lost her feistiness and that, quote, it was almost like her personality had been squashed out of her, unquote. Again, this is a common thing to hear when looking at domestic abuse cases. I'm just saying this is sounding pretty textbook. A lot of people think domestic abuse is always physical. It's not. There's mental as well. It's isolation. It's control. It's gaslighting. There comes a point when the abused give up hope. They get tired of constantly arguing. The abuser will do this on purpose. They'll make everything a fight. That way it sends the message that either you do what I say, you do what I want, or there's going to be a three-hour, four-hour, two-day fight, and it's going to leave you exhausted. It's conditioning. It's conditioning the victim to just say yes or agree to everything because it's easier. And that can look like the victim has lost their personality. It can look like they've lost any fight they may have had in them because they are just so exhausted from fighting about every little thing. They have a decision to make when they disagree with the abuser. They can either disagree with the abuser and have a long, drawn-out, terrible fight, which might happen every day, or they can be like, I'm just going to say yes and just avoid this whole fight. At the end of 2015, Matthew and Jessica eventually did get married, and on her wedding day, her aunt Denise would later describe Jessica as looking sad on her wedding day. According to a quote from The New Yorker, Denise said this, there was just this sadness in her eyes, like... I'm done. In typical wedding tradition, there was a wedding reception. This is the really fun part of the wedding. This is the the part that I love the most. It's where everyone dances and eats cake and has a good time and 
Well, Jessica's family, they wanted to make sure that she had one, so they hosted it. But unfortunately, Jessica and Matthew didn't even stay for an hour at their own wedding reception. And I could only guess who wanted to leave. Probably not Jessica. Once married, things did not get better for the couple. If anything, it seemed to be getting worse. Matthew and Jessica, they had a truck. uh, And Matthew, he also had his patrol car he would use while at work. Since he was at work using this patrol car, that would mean Jessica was free to use the truck, right? Wrong. Matthew would take the keys to the truck with him to work so she couldn't go anywhere. Jessica also didn't have access to money or credit cards, so if she needed anything for the home, for herself, or for the children, she would have to ask Matthew to get it or he would have to take her to get things. According to ChooseTherapy.com, this is a form of family violence. This is what they say on their website about financial abuse. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Financial abuse occurs when an abuser takes full control over another person's finances in order to prevent this person from leaving the abuser or to exert power within a relationship. They do so by maintaining full control over any funds, withholding it from the individual, or hiding information regarding financials from the individual. On this website, they list nine signs of financial abuse and... Listen to number one. Number one is the denial of access to money. Withholding resources such as access to bank accounts, credit cards, financial statements, transportation, property, healthcare, or even food is an offensive and neglective way to isolate a victim in an abusive relationship. So I've pulled that straight from their website. I have linked that article if you would like to read the entire article. So I just read number one, and I'll also read number nine in this article. Number nine, coexistence of narcissism. Because narcissists tend to view their partners as an extension of themselves rather than a whole and separate person, they often feel entitled to make financial decisions and choices on behalf of both partners on their own. This disempowers their partner and makes them a victim of financial abuse in marriage. Hmm. And again, I got that from the website, choosetherapy.com. Matthew and Jessica have two children. They've been together for four years. They've been married for less than half of a year. And when Jessica discovered Matthew was the one having an affair with a police dispatcher he worked with. In a Crime Watch Daily episode on this case, Jessica's friend and neighbor said Jessica was suspicious Matthew was cheating, so she looked at his Facebook private messages. That's when she discovered his secret. The neighbor said that Jessica was happy to have found this information, and the reason she was so happy to discover this was because she wanted a divorce, and this is only six months after their wedding. Jessica wanted the best chances to get what she needed from this divorce, so she kept a detailed journal. In this journal were dates and times that Matthew was allegedly with his mistress. This journal was going to be given to a divorce lawyer, which Jessica had been talking to. Most important to her, though, was getting full custody of her children. So I don't know a lot about divorce, but it seems like if the other person is having an affair, it's a lot easier to get what you want from the divorce. So I'm not really sure about the details of that, but this seemed to be very important. 
Jessica was planning her exit. She was planning her life without Matthew. She had a place to live lined up. She had her children's bags packed and she had a job lined up. And Matthew, he knew all of this. Jessica and her children were going to be moving in with her sister. And she had a job as a receptionist lined up at a chiropractic office. The move was to take place on April 15th. But something else happened on that day instead. The day before, on April 14th, Matthew and Jessica got into a fight. Matthew calls his friend at the police station, like he has done in the past. He tells them Jessica is poking him in the chest and yelling at him. And this call is made around 9 p.m. Jessica takes her children and goes over to the neighbor's apartment to get out of the situation with Matthew. She's clearly upset. I have heard countless times when someone is escaping an abusive relationship, this is the most dangerous time for them. And again, I'm not saying that this is that situation. I'm just saying, remember, Matthew Boyton has never been found guilty or convicted or sentenced for anything relating to this case. As Jessica is at her neighbor's with her children escaping this fight, Matthew, he texts her because apparently... He can't even go to Walmart and buy baby formula alone. To me, this seems like a way to manipulate Jessica into coming out of the neighbor's home and being with him. He texts her, meet me at my truck. We got to go to Walmart to get baby formula. Okay, well, why can't he just go get it? You know, why does he need her to come get it? According to Walmart security footage, Jessica, Matthew, and their two boys are shopping in Walmart by 10.15 p.m. They are seen on camera. Matthew is wearing a gray sweater. Jessica is wearing a red sweater. Remember that gray sweater detail for later. The two are seen on camera getting into another fight in the baby formula section. Jessica was in need of baby formula because she was starting a job in a week and she wanted her baby to be on formula. Could that have been what the fight was about? I mean, I don't know. There was no audio on it. We just know they get into a fight in the baby formula section and Jessica, she leaves Walmart with her baby in her arm. Like she walks away from Matthew, which is seen on camera at 10.45 p.m. Matthew then calls his friends at the police station again and says, Jessica is refusing to leave with him from Walmart. And when I heard that, I was like, what? Why would he do that? Why would he keep the police updated was and it just I, it, I don't know it just didn't make sense to me that he's calling the police for every little thing in him and Jessica's relationship they have a fight he calls police she walks away from him at Walmart he calls police according to the New Yorker the police officer Matthew talked to advised him that he can't force her into the vehicle so I don't know what Matthew was hoping to get from this conversation I would hope that he already knows that forcing anybody into a vehicle is against the law. So I don't know why he needs that confirmed to him. Eventually though, Matthew, Jessica, and the children all leave together in Matthew's vehicle, which is seen on camera. And they were home by 11 p.m. At 11 p.m., a police officer came around to take a statement from the earlier call Matthew made about Jessica yelling and poking him in the chest. The report Matthew made with that officer says Jessica never got in his truck and came home with him from Walmart. But wait a second. I saw it with my own eyes on surveillance footage played on Crime Watch Daily. And a neighbor also saw them return together. So why does this report say she never got in the truck with him at Walmart and came home with him? 
After that report was taken, the officer left. I'm not sure how long that officer was there to take the statement, but between 11 and 11.30, a neighbor said they heard two gunshots and then saw Matthew walking quickly to his truck and then drive away. Matthew says he left around midnight to go to a Waffle House. He and a friend had, they had planned a late night meal at this Waffle House. And I'm not sure how far this Waffle House was from his apartment or the exact time he left. But what we do know is that while he was on his way, I'm pretty sure he didn't make it into the Waffle House to have this late night meal with his friend. So while he was on his way to this Waffle House, he received a distressing text message from Jessica at 1245. That's why I'm very curious as to where this Waffle House is in proximity to, to his house. Because the timeline here, it just gets a little bit messy for me. Before Matthew left home, Matthew claims that Jessica had asked him to call her an ambulance. He thought that maybe she was having a lot of anxiety or experiencing a panic attack. And when she closed the door, he just left. He never called this ambulance. He never stuck around to help her or see what was wrong with her. He just left. And that's very odd to me. His wife says, call me an ambulance. And according to him, she was doubled over and he just left. He was like, nah, I'm going to go get waffles after midnight. Bye. And just leaves his wife alone. Matthew, he leaves, he drives to the Waffle House, and then he receives a text message while on the way from Jessica at 1245. This text message is so alarming to him that he called police to have someone rush over to their apartment because he was at the Waffle House or he was on his way to the Waffle House. And again, this seems strange. Why even leave in the first place? The text message he received from Jessica read this, quote, I can't do this anymore. Take care of Tolan and Tyler. Please tell them I love them every day. I have been suffering for a while now and no one has noticed. Here lately, I have not been able to recognize the person I see in the mirror. This is not the first time I have had suicide thoughts. I love you and the boys, unquote. Matthew didn't call emergency services as soon as he received that message though. No, no. First, he replied to his mistress. The text message he wrote to the woman he was having an affair with while directly after receiving the quote-unquote suicide text from his wife read this, quote, ha I'm sorry, I didn't think about that, lol, unquote. Yeah, yeah, there's a ha-ha and an lol in there after he had received this distressing message from Jessica. One that he was so concerned about, he called police. He was so worried. He message he messages the woman he's having an affair with saying, ha ha, and LOL. So I don't know what his girlfriend had sent him previously, but that was his response to whatever they were conversing about. And this shows he was having a normal conversation at the same time. That highly distressing message from Jessica that he called police about. Then he calls police dispatch saying how worried he was because he received that text message from his wife and that someone needs to go over there and that he's driving so fast to get there. I was able to hear the phone call and this is exactly what was said between Matthew and the dispatcher. Are you on EMS? Mm-hmm. Can you please dispatch a unit out to my uh, location to make reference uh, to my wife? Um, I left the location. I'm, I'm back and around on Carver Road now. I'll be back there in about two minutes. Uh, she's having suicidal thoughts. My kids are at home with her. 
So I'm trying to hurry up and get back there. I'm driving. She just said that she's been experiencing suicidal thoughts right now. She told me to take care of the boys. So I'm trying to hurry up and get back home just to make sure that nothing's going to happen to them. Any weapons inside the house? Um, just my service weapon. What else seems odd is that when police arrive, he's already there. He's at the apartment before police. Actually, six minutes after placing that 911 call, he was already at his house. He had already parked his truck. He had already gotten out of the vehicle. He had already walked up the flight of stairs to his home, heard gunshots, two of them, he says. So he says he ran into the home, grabbed his police radio to inform them that he had heard the gunshots and that the closet he keeps his service weapon in is locked and smells of gun smoke and he can't get the door open. He did all of this in six minutes. It was within six minutes his radio calls coming in. So he had already been in the home, grabbed his police radio, checked this cupboard door, smelled the gun smoke, ran outside, and then radioed police. And he said he ran out of the apartment, leaving both children inside because he was scared. He said he never went back inside after he went in the first time. Matthew also told police when he arrived on the scene to his apartment and he was coming up the stairs, he could also hear the baby inside crying. So he went into the house. He didn't look in the children's bedroom. He looked in the master bedroom where they usually sleep, where the baby is usually asleep. And since the baby wasn't there, Matthew didn't know what was happening. He didn't know if this was an active shooting situation. He didn't know if Jessica was going to kill everybody, kill him, kill the kids, and then kill herself. So he just ran out of the apartment, leaving his children in in the apartment, but not knowing where they were. Had he looked in their bedrooms, he would have found them. Police took this call very, very serious as there was a weapon involved according to what Matthew was telling them. It wasn't a few officers that showed up. It was almost a dozen. The police enter the home and find a crying baby in his crib and the other child sleeping, both unharmed. They come to a locked closet where Matthew stated he keeps his service weapon and they force it open. Inside, they find 19-year-old Jessica laying lifeless, her hair saturated in blood, her head almost perfectly placed on a pillow. When they move her, that's when they find Matthew's service weapon under her body. Police immediately suspect she took Matthew's gun and shot herself in the head. What is very, very odd is that when I watched the police body cam footage of when they found Jessica in the closet, there is no blood spatter on the walls where she allegedly shot herself in the head. All the blood is on the pillow. It's in her hair. It's on the pillow. There's no blood spatter on the walls. And I'm not the only one who finds this odd. There were multiple sources that I looked at that were like, where's the blood spatter? Also in this body cam footage is the divorce journal Jessica was keeping to give to her lawyer that had all the information about Matthew's affair in it. This journal was practically front and center in the closet, but a bunch of the pages had been ripped out. Information from that book had gone missing. This book, she was hiding from Matthew. So why would it be out in the open like that? And you can see it in the police body cam footage because it's a bright red notebook. And you can see it sitting on a shelf, like right front and center, literally right there, like it's on display. 
Also, the question is, why was there two gunshots? Matthew said he heard two shots when he returned. They found two casings and two bullet holes in the walls of the closet. Well, they believe the second shot was an accidental discharge after the first shot was fired by Jessica into her own head. EMS, they're trying desperately to find the bullet wound to stop the bleeding, but they can't locate one under all of the matted blood-soaked hair. There's also another reason they can't locate this bullet wound, but we will talk about that later. Remember how I said Matthew's grandfather was a police officer? Well, Sheriff Wendell Beam is called out to this scene, and this man is Matthew's grandfather. Apparently, this is unusual for him to be there because the sheriff's office doesn't respond to incidents in that particular area. This was very odd and out of the ordinary that he be there, and apparently he was the only one from his office there. It's Sheriff Wendell Beam who tells police to make a visit to Jessica's grandparents' house to tell them she has died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. It is now after 2 a.m. on April 15th, which is the day Jessica and the children were supposed to leave Matthew. Instead, the police are going to inform Jessica's grandparents of her suicide. To Jessica's grandparents, none of this makes any sense. Her grandmother knows Jessica wouldn't touch a gun. As a child, when everyone would shoot guns, Jessica would refuse to even touch one. Jessica's sister gets the news and rushes over to see Jessica. This is the sister she was supposed to be moving in with that day. Her sister tells police that there is no way Jessica would have done this to her children because she knows what it's like to not have a mother. Jessica knows that and she wouldn't do that to her children. This is what her sister is adamant about. This suicide isn't making sense to anyone close to Jessica. She had plans. She had a job lined up. She loved her children. She loved being a mother. And like her sister said, Jessica would not leave her children behind in this world. She just wouldn't. Matthew is interviewed by an agent from the GBI, which stands for Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And when this agent informs Matthew that he may need to collect his clothing, Matthew, he's very compliant. He says, absolutely. Then informs the officer he never washed his hands or brushed anything off. Okay. Why, uh, why would you say that? Why, why are you telling them that? Also, in that Walmart surveillance footage, he was wearing a gray sweater, remember? But on the police body cam footage and when he is talking to this agent, he is wearing a red sweater, which means he changed his clothes sometime between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., which is the exact window of time Jessica was seen alive at Walmart and then found in that closet. The agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation also go around to the other apartments to get statements from neighbors. This is when they come across a couple that lives right beside Jessica and Matthew. This neighbor tells the agents that she didn't hear any gunshots at 1 a.m., but she did hear two gunshots around 11.30, then right after saw Matthew leaving quickly. Also told to agents was just before those gunshots, it sounded like someone was banging on a door and then the two gunshots happened. And again, not at 1 a.m., closer to 11.30 p.m. 
The neighbor said she had wanted to talk to the agents longer, but they spoke to her briefly and then left. The neighbor immediately suspected Matthew of harming Jessica and told the agents she hopes Matthew goes to jail for this. The police were treating this as a suicide and therefore seemed to be collecting very little evidence. Both Matthew's hands and Jessica's hands were not swabbed for gunshot residue. It didn't seem like this was being investigated at all. Now, I have a bomb to drop. Jessica is alive. That's right. She wasn't dead and Sheriff Beam a.k.a. Matthew's grandfather, told her family she was. Jessica was airlifted to a hospital, and when her head was shaved to treat the gunshot wound, the doctor couldn't find the gunshot wound. In fact, there wasn't one, and instead he believes it to be blunt force trauma. The wound was on top of her head. No bullet was found in her head or body. There was no exit wound. The bullet holes in the closet were in an upward trajectory. If she shot herself on the top of her head, how did the bullet go upwards into the wall if the gun was pointing down? It's also very uncommon for somebody to shoot themselves on the top of their head when they're trying to commit suicide. There was a lot not making sense. Jessica was still alive, but she was put into a medical-induced coma for three weeks and therefore couldn't explain what happened in that closet. But after those three weeks, she comes out of the coma and Jessica tells everyone she would have never tried to kill herself or sent that suicide message to Matthew. In that text, it read she loved him and she said she would have never written that to him she would have never told him that things are about to take a wild turn in this case but this is where I'm going to end this week's episode it is a two-parter the next part will be out next week please follow hell no true crime podcast on Instagram and TikTok for weekly updates at hell no underscore a true crime podcast Also, while I have you here, I'd like to give a shout out to a loyal listener by the name of Erica. Erica, I've been told you listen to every episode and I just wanted to say thank you for your support. I'm so happy Troy introduced you to my podcast. (laughs) If everyone just has a second right now and you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please rate this podcast five stars. It really helps my podcast grow. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Oh,